Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. What's up? This is Sugar Steve from Questlove Supreme. Anybody who knows this podcast is well aware that our interviews can last for hours. So often, we split them into two parts. It also gives listeners a suspenseful reason to come back next week or check their podcast feed for more episodes. Back in 2022, we sat down with L.A. Reid for what became a rare three-part interview. In part two of L.A. Reid's comprehensive interview with Questlove Supreme, he recalls working with The Whispers, Whitney Houston, and Michael Jackson. Please rate, like, and subscribe to this on your podcast feeds. Check back for new episodes and follow our new YouTube page at QLS. This is a question that I tried asking Jimmy Jam. And I still wasn't satisfied with the answer. Now, I owned Eyes of a Stranger. I mean, I've owned all your records. But when Eyes of a Stranger came out, and I always have this question, I will ask you, I will ask the SOS band, I will ask Boys to Men. How bold do you have to be in order to start with a ballad? <laughs> your first three songs on the album with ballads. Yeah. Especially in this mind state where you're like, wow. we got to grab them by the collar. Right. In your mind, you were like, two occasions is so damn Teflon. We better open with this joint. Like, are you guys not thinking? I got to think- look at the track list and to see if you're and right. And it's the first record. No, it's the first record on the track list. It, it yeah. opens yeah. it. Oh, yeah. Let me see some eyes. With my eye, like, what, literally. Yeah. And they back to back. That's interesting, Amir. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they and the thing is, the way the way that I f- see wow. records and building records and like the drama and the, the yeah. like the up and like two occasions to me was always either the fourth song on side A, wow, or the, sec- or the second song on side two. Y'all, oh, it, to me, it's almost like opening Thriller with Human Nature. <laughs> right. I can't believe I just this doesn't make sense to me. Which what? Because I, you- I think in terms of albums. And this also explains why you have way more hits than I do. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. No, I think that's a resequence, man. Okay. No. You, you have you have the actual vinyl or cassette or something? Because 
not there. I don't expect you to have it there, but I'm saying it's the 1987. I can't, I can't believe that. I thought Can You Dance was the first song on the album. Hang on oh. a second. I'm now checking all gotcha. the streaming Discogs. services. Yeah, but no, well, on Apple Music, it is, yeah, y'all are right. It's one and two. And Can oh, no. You Dance is five. Yeah. yeah that, that's not sounding right. Okay. Opens the record. And this uh well, I mean, obviously it worked because I think when anyone thinks of the deal, it's two occasions, and at that, it's yeah. it's right a rush. All right, all right. So this is but weird, that wasn't cause... even our first single. Hold up. What me, was the on. what was the first two occasions? Was the... well, damn sure it wasn't shoot him up. No, no. Hold on, I'm gonna tell you. Okay, where's that album? Where's that album? Eyes of well, Stranger. Okay, while he's looking is. for it, this reminds oh, me. Oh shit, man! You're right again. Hold <laughs> up. Now I'm on Discogs looking at it. It's straight up. Yeah. Well, this Don't is, be sorry. No, no, but listen, and it, this really brings about full circle because when I don't know if you remember this conversation, like you, the day that things fall apart came out, mm-hmm. February 23rd, 1999. The next day I spoke to you because you were telling me about like, you know, you you were on the radio and all that stuff. Mm. And you gave me a message from your mom and your mom said, why would they bury the Erica Badu song at the end of side two? Yeah. Wow. Yes. (laughs) Why do we have to sit through that entire album to get to it? Which was kind of like my plan. It's like, okay, because that's the single. Y'all heard that already. Y'all heard that one. Yeah. You're making them listen to it, okay. Y'all would have never gotten through the rest of the record to see who we were before we got you. But you did the, the opposite of what L.A. did. Wow. I know, but that's... That's why he's me. L.A. <laughs> <laughs> no, stop. No. no maybe I'm, maybe I'm I should have to... opened with You Got Me. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> I swear I don't remember. I really don't remember, but the only logic that I can come up with is... Put the hits up front. That's the only mm. thing I can think of is put the hits mm. up front, right? But we put out, yeah, we put out Can You Dance? And we thought we'd kind of gotten it right. Okay, we got it right now. Now we got it. This is better than this is better than material things. Sonically, it's better. Got a mm. right engineer. Tom's not overshadowing everything, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And it didn't work at all. We got nowhere. And then Dick Griffey came. And this is what Dick stepped in. Right. He said, he says, comes to the studio. Play me all the records. So play me. He's, sitting there. he's mean about it, too. Like that's like that. Like, play me all the records like I'm sick of you, you know, because by the way, I forgot to tell you, I, I picked another stiff. I, I not a stiff, but Babyface's first solo album was called Lovers. Lovers yeah. And um, I love you, babe. And I no, I picked you make me feel brand new to cover as the singer. Oh yeah. And wait, and, that came out before I love you, babe. Yeah, yeah. And I don't even was, remember that. And it was cute, but that was me thinking that the, I didn't know. And Dick Griffey was like, you just <laughs> Dick was like, you just think you know everything, don't you? I mean, that's how he talked to me. Like, let me let me tell you something. This is my record company, and this is my studio, and we're doing that no more. So he picked the hits. Yeah, nah, he I had picked it here, yeah. all the wrong songs. <laughs> I, I picked, I picked. You made me feel brand new for Babyface, and I picked. Can we talk for the deal? Both wrong. Yeah, Dick comes back and picks um, two occasions and shoot him up movies. Shoot him up movies. Yeah. He gave me that song. Wow. Which 
He gave me the song. It's another guy, it's the only time my band ever did a song that we didn't write or co-write. He gave me that song and said, this might be good for you. So Kenny and I went and we produced it. But they, did you like the it? song? I did like it. I liked it, liked it, but my band hated it. Wait, which one are we talking about? Movies? Did y'all like the cover? Shoot them up movies. Oh, okay. Wait, who did the cover? Who did Wait, the cover? Who did the cover? Yeah. Who did the cover? Uh, Bobby Dick from uh, on No Limit Records. He, he covered uh, Shoot 'em Up movies in like ninety. You kidding? No bullshit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, when we're done, listen to Bobby. Yeah. You brought this up. Shoot like, up I just want to be clear. I, By yeah. the way, we only did, we did it because Dick wouldn't make. He wouldn't let us have music videos. He said we weren't pretty enough, so we couldn't get music videos. Really? So I figured if I do two occasions, I mean, I'm not two occasions. I'm do, we do shoot 'em up movies, which is a song he gave us. Maybe we might get a music video. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Y'all have not done music videos. We didn't have no music videos. Oh. Yeah. But everybody else on the label, Shalomar had the music videos, mm -hmm. and and oh, every the weirdest music videos of all time. Right. But we oh, didn't get any. So. Were so, but, their videos were so off kilter, man. But y'all right. were so pretty. That's so odd. All right. So here's the deal. I'm going to ask you a question as a CEO about your artist self. And hopefully, because I think you're one of the first major CEOs we had on the show. And I need it explained to me like I'm a 12 year old. Okay. Now, uh, uh, an out of the box hit like two occasions now as a person who has not had a lifespan and i'm talking about myself mm -hmm. as a singles artist mm -hmm. you know i mean i've had many top 10 albums you know whatever i make my living on the road but as a singles artist i'm not i'm led to believe that hits are manufactured not in that sort of organic way that we're led to believe it is where it's like you're just suddenly singing and every time I close my eyes, like, you know what I like that two occasion song by the deal and then you call the radio station and you request it and then it becomes a hit I'm led to believe especially now that deals are already made and I'm not asking about the process of how deals get made mm -hmm. but is two occasions a hit because it just organically spread that way? Or mm -hmm. was the solar muscle, again, I'm not going to give up until I get a Dick Griffey story, <laughs> behind it to make it a hit? Okay, so what I think. Or is it a meet you halfway thing? Give us a song we can work with, and then we'll ram it. I am shamelessly commercial. Let me just put that out there, right? I'm you and I are opposites in that regard. Like I am, I am like so singles oriented. Like like especially like the first two songs I picked were stiffs, so I became like I'm gonna mm -hmm. get this singles thing down, right? So <laughs> I I before let me interrupt yeah. you real quick, I, and I want to use this opportunity to actually dispel a myth. Okay, I am not anti singles. Oh, I actually no. No, I don't like, think you're anti-singles. I'm not anti-singles, and I. <laughs> this is good. I will. I will freely admit. I mean, this might be Captain Obvious to you know Fonte, whatever. Is I think for half the people that just pose like, ah oh, man, I ain't with that bubblegum pop shit. It's I believe that pop songs are the hardest things. The hardest to songs, execute. Are right? Yeah. Right. That's right. I, you give me a free jazz song, I'll knock that shit. I, it'll be on right. the next Robert Glasper record. 
you know, right instantly. But I don't know, you know, and I think since I've put in 20,000 hours of DJing, hard DJing between the last Roots album yes. and now, there's like nine years of that. I'm I'm hyper aware of what songs work and don't work that I didn't have mm-hmm. in my first. Now, I guess my job is to mm-hmm. not make it so, you know, now that I know the, 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 the secrets or the codes or whatever, to figure out how to nuance my knowledge and not just make it like, Okay, now that I know we need hit singles, like I know what our fan base expects of us. However, I'm I I just want to say that I'm not anti-pop because I get it. I, th- I think it's you know kid music. I just never knew how to do it. Right, right. I completely get that. Listen, I I have this may be a fair or unfair comparison, but first version of Cool in the Gang, and then. The pop version of Cool in the Gang, right? Right. They made they made Too Hot and all those songs that were great, but I hated that band. Like I loved the original Cool in the Gang when they played. But how do you feel now about looking back as an executive? Looking back (laughs) on it, that was me. That was me before record companies, before anything. It was just a preference. I'm like, y'all soft. That's soft. Like, that's like, what is, mm-hmm. come on, where's Hollywood swinging and those crazy intros mm-hmm. and the horns? And like, those are just songs. I didn't like it at all. Right. Um, now I understand the difference. I still prefer the first version of Cool in the Gang. So, what I'm saying is, you and your band can't really afford to do it, man. If y'all really, if y'all really did it, like what happens is that you disappoint a a, a lifetime of fans, yeah. and no matter how you feel about it, at that point, maybe for the first time, you're gonna be really criticized for trying to get a hit. So it's that it's it's won't be the first time. Because, but you're you're so successful <laughs> at girl. what you do that that would be a mistake. My opinion is that that would be a mistake, right? Unless it were completely organic, completely like nothing changes except this song just happened to catch, right? But yeah, because if you, if you did anything to to if you look of, like you're trying, you can't do that. Like you you're you're a savior. You could you can't do that. I'm not doing that. However, I am so aware that wow. We never we've had grooves, but we never had a melody line. There's never a part of the song that you can whistle and it sticks with you. That's not true. And also, isn't there a gray in there? Isn't there the fact then that maybe y'all were just missing an L.A. ear when it comes to singles? Because for me, as the radio girl, listening to all these records that y'all put out at times, I just felt like y'all didn't hear the single. Y'all put Mm. out the wrong song. Like, Mm. what about the gray in there? As, As as of this conversation two days ago. Um, I'm, 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 I'm talking right now from New Orleans. Uh, we okay. just did the Essence Festival. And for the first time, we've played uh, with Little Kim. Mm. And of course, the subject of Lighters Up comes up. Now, uh, for those that don't know, um, mm, mm, Little mm. Kim's Lighters Up song was a root song. Oh, uh, that That's I don't torch. know. <laughs> <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. One, one day happened? on Quest Love Supreme, he'll answer uh, the question. Scott. <laughs> we're, all, right, all, all, <laughs> all I can say was when Tariq and I went to Florida, we made lighters up. We took a three hour dinner break. By the way, having dinner with OJ Simpson and Buster Rhymes. Long story. Yeah. yeah. Whoa. And, and, <laughs> long story. 
come back to the studio, finish the music of, of what you know is Lighters Up. Came back, you know, pretty confident, like, hey, we're going to have a good first single for our Tipping Point record. And next thing I know, like a month later, I hear that song with Little Kim on it. And I was just like, what the fuck? Oh, wow. And but Scott, good choice, Scott. Well, I mean, I Scott. Mean, no, Scott yeah. obviously gave it to Kim. Yeah. But. Oh, Scott Storch. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, Scott yeah. Storch oh. was. You know, Scott, original roots. Man. Scott was That's a right. member of the roots. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So even then, my whole point was that. And, you know, we joked about it like, you know, this is our song first or whatever. Did she know? But even, But uh, she was surprised. She's like, I, yeah. she like I, I heard you play drums on it. But no, <laughs> I, I if you remember and do the right thing when Samuel <laughs> Jackson does the senior love daddy. Uh-huh. The roll, roll call. call thing. Yes. If you listen to that music in the background, I was do the right thing was on in the break room. And I remember that I was like, hey, let me see if I can make a song without a snare. And just with hi hats and symbols, that's what I was. Wow, that's what I was making. And Scott put piano on top of it, and it was like, all right, this this could work. But my whole point is that even if we kept that song, I'm not even certain it would have really huh? went off like that. We would have done to that song what she did to it, right? So right. it's almost like yes, right. it, it went with this rightful owner. Again, we don't have a filter in us that knows. Right. How to not flex our intellect. Like Tariq has to be the smartest guy in the room. Right. Instead of the most relatable guy in the room. Lyrically. And did Rich ever let anybody else help pick a single? Uh, Rich was brilliant, too. Oh, he uh, is? But, yeah, definitely. But, but, well, but I mean, me... Scott made it up to us by doing Don't Say Nothing. But then that's when our fan base sort of clapped back. Like, I, I thought Don't Say Nothing was clever because I like the fact that Tariq was saying something nonsensical. Here's my take on it. There's two kinds of stars. There's the artist and there's the song, right? Songs can be stars, right? And artists can be stars. And when the two collide, you get Whitney Houston, I don't know, right? Mm -hmm. You get, you know, the, the big, whoever you might like, Michael Jackson, you know, but yeah. sometimes the artist is the star, but not necessarily the song. And sometimes the song is a star, but not necessarily the artist. Big facts. Right? Yeah. And that's how oh, I look wow. at it. So I separate those two, right? Return wow. of the Mac. Great example. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That song is a star, right? That song, yeah, that song is a jam. Right. And there's, a lot, and there's, there's many of those. But then that's there's the also, right. there's the also very, very talented artist, Tori Amos. You, I don't know if you listen yeah. to her. Oh, come she's on. not yeah. a hit maker, but she's yeah. incredible. Yeah. Right? And, uh, you know, and there, and there are others, you know, um, but so I separate the two. That's how I that's how I look at it. So do you think that the industry as it is now makes space for those kinds of artists? Do you think there's a space for those artists to exist like on major labels where it's like, OK, you may not have the hit record or the TikTok song is going off, but you just mm. are an amazing artist. And I think there's an audience for that. All right, you're not going to like my answer. Nah, I'm and, giving and it to it's me real, get bro. Me in trouble. No, and I got I got a tag on top of Fonte's question. Okay, go ahead. My answer to that is not if you're black. No, you better let's tell talk, your let's truth. Talk about it. Talk about it. Come on, come on, come on. If you're black, you better have a hit. 
Listen. I'm with oh, it. Oh, that's 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 true. If you, if you if you got a hot garage band that don't make hits, don't no problem. We just put you on the road. Just stay on the road till you get a hit. <laughs> or, yeah, or you better be the band that's on a label that believes in that. Which yeah, that's definitely. And yo, that's so literally. Up. I don't even know if I told people this. The only reason why the roots lasted that long is because it was in our contract. If you have album number one, we have to make three albums. If you have album number four, we have to make three albums. If you have album number seven, you have to make. So we couldn't get dropped. That was the only way that we never got. We would have gotten dropped otherwise. Wait, I have to ask this because I heard. All right. So post and I'm so jumping ahead in the future. But since you brought it up, I believe the story that was told to me was back when I, I think this was. 80 not 80 this was either 1999 or 2000 i believe you you guys signed an artist named uh stephanie germanata to the label Uh oh okay who that would have been probably a little later than that probably oh six okay all right my whole point is that the Fiona Apple incarnation of Lady Gaga uh-uh. was, to my knowledge, on a Def Jam artist, or she was signed to the label. And yep, I signed her. Right. Uh, what Josh, did you see in that artist that later morphed into what we know now? The day uh, she came in, she plays rock and roll piano, first of all, and she's incredible at it. Um, right. And she came in. And she had on the white go-go boots and and she was like just seducing the piano. I mean, you know, she gets in it. She's inside the keys, right? Yeah, and she's doing I, Tori Amos. Thank you. Right. Uh, I was going to say that, but I did. Right? <laughs> if, you know, if you know Tori Amos. <laughs> that's what I saw. In her prime show. Yeah. That's what I saw. And, right. and I thought she was incredible. And I remember saying to her that, and she reminded me of this because my memory is not that good. She told me that in that room, I told her that she would likely change music. That's how passionate I was. So we signed her and then they started to bring me demos. And when I heard the demos, like I didn't hear that same thing that I saw. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like it. And and I had Rihanna and Justin Bieber and Kanye and the dream and everybody. And I was feeling myself way too damn much. Right. Note to self, like don't be <laughs> feeling yourself. Um, and they were, and I was like, this is, I don't want to put this out. Like, this is not it. This is not the girl I signed. This is not, this isn't moving me. And I let her go before we ever released the record. And then she found Akon mm-hmm. red one and ultimately Jimmy Ivy. And she put out Just Dance and it started blowing up in Canada. I was watching it because I didn't want to be embarrassed. Mm. (laughs) Uh Mm. I was like, that's just Canada. Mm. Then I started seeing it blow up in Miami. Mm. That's just Miami. Mm -hmm. That's just the clubs. Mm. Then it started blowing up in the Bay. Mm. Then it charted. Man, and then it became Gaga. <laughs> and I was like, uh, I was like, you stupid. <laughs> you feel like, wow. Yo, so, okay, so question. So in that situation, 
in your role as an executive, how much of it is putting out or uh, putting out things that you like versus a record may come to you and it's like, okay, I personally don't like this, but I know that it will work with this audience. Like how much of it yeah. is like your personal taste versus the marketplace? It's a little bit of both. First of all, I, I will stand, even in that case, I, I, I clearly blew it. But for the most part, I'll stand by other people that work at the label. If they say they're passionate about something, I'll give it a shot. It doesn't have to just be my thing, right? Gotcha. Um, but if it's something that I signed that I mm-hmm. personally endorsed, then I want to feel good about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and in those cases, I'm kind of listening to me, right? But th- I just blew it, man. I just completely blew it. I have to appreciate, but here's the thing I appreciate about this story. We've had three artists on the show that told us the story of where it wasn't working out with their label staff. Right. And, and instead of just being like, you know what? You're right. Let's, let's, let's call it a day and let you go. I learned that the label will sometimes just freeze an artist out just to avoid the embarrassment in yes. case that happens. Yes, for sure. People hold on. Um, they don't want to be wrong or they don't want to make a decision. But I don't respect that. Like, I'd rather, like, listen, I blew it. And I tell you I blew it. And and while it, while it, it, it pains me and, and it's embarrassing, I'd rather live in that truth than to have shelved her and just made her keep mm-hmm. going back and going back and going back when mm-hmm. I knew I didn't like it. I didn't like it. It wasn't for me. Right. So if it's not for me, perhaps she could have a life somewhere else. And I'm actually OK with that, as embarrassing as it is. How different was the music that she presented to you? How different was it than what she presented to the world? It was very different because if you know her, you know, she's diverse and she could do many things. And the kind of music she made on the first album and a little bit on the second album, she's never revisited that. So she's clearly able to do a lot of different kinds of music. And it wasn't, that was like, like dance pop or I I don't know. That's what I called it. You know, um, so it wasn't EDM yet or no, no, it it wasn't that flavor at all. It was kind of piano based, a little bit jamming a little bit. Yeah. But it just, okay. didn't, they didn't feel like hits. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Schmurder to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR, Noir. 
Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we got to get back in the time machine because I'm not. All right, come on, come on. We all over the place, right? <laughs> yeah, because I was I'm having a great time. Billy Leisha. Thank you. Well, I want to know what touring with the deal was like across the states as opposed to just you guys being in one environment as a club band. Like your first your first touring. Oh, my God. Our first the first show we had as the deal with Body Talk as a hit, we opened for the DeBarge. And Luther Vandross. Oh, that's right. Sounds familiar. Life changing yes. moment, right? First show yeah. was at um, uh, in Indianapolis at Market Square Arena. So now, now we have a band that's gone from playing club that could barely hold two hundred people to Market Square Arena, and we hit that stage, and we were the opening act. So we got a line check, but not a sound check, and, and I like to use that as an excuse. Uh, uh, why we were so bad, but we were horrible. I mean, we were so horrible. When we got off stage, like we didn't even, you know, we're supposed to be excited. That's our first show is in a big arena and a major tour. And we should have been like really happy and excited and and slapping each other five and and having a celebratory moment. But uh, we were really embarrassed by it. Uh, we We didn't have, we were not built for that big stage. We didn't know what we were getting into, and and we overdid our we overdid our our gimmick too much makeup too much <laughs> too much everything for all the cities or for certain cities. No, this was just this one show. The very just one first show. It's oh, the first right? show. The first show. Okay. So show is over, and I'm in the hotel room. My road manager, his name is Leon Burnett, wonderful man. He comes. Says. Dick Griffey wants to talk to you. Mm-mm. I'm like, uh-oh. 
So, and I don't remember the conversation that well, but I remember being a little bit frightened and not threatened, but warned. If we come out like that again, we're off the show. And I remember him saying uh, something about Sylvester. Okay. Right? Like, we don't want no more Sylvester's. We don't want no something like that. Like, it was something like that. And anyway, we cleaned up our act. And the next night, we were a lot better. Right. But the first night, man, we blew it so badly. It was just really bad. And then we got a little used to it. Luther embraced us. Elder Barge embraced us. And we all kind of became friends. And then they started, you know, they st- we, we got treated a little bit better. And we got better. And we had some nights when we actually really caught a good rhythm. Um, but I've heard stories of Luther's restrictions. Uh, again, I'm also a good friend with with uh, a friend of the show is, is uh, Shep Gordon. Who would yes. say how anal retentive Luther was with the lights you can use or the colors you can wear? Or- yes, we never heard about colors. Definitely the lights and how many channels on the mixing console and things like that. But like Luther and I were buddies, um, you know, and and Kenny because like he has so much respect for Kenny as a songwriter because we used to give Luther demos when we were on the road. Uh, So we just kind of built a relationship and uh, we never felt like there was a lot of restrictions there. As a matter of fact, he wouldn't even make us leave the backstage. He would let us stay, you know, because there used to be this, when the superstar comes out of the dressing room, all right, everybody go in your dressing room. Everybody over here. You go over there. Now go over here. That's still happening right now. It definitely still happens. That still happens right now. It's a mess. One of those people's going to jail for 30 years, but he used to do that all the time. Right? Uh, It was like insane. Um, But Luther didn't do that to us. He let us hang, right? And, oh, did you know Yogi Horton? The drummer, yes. I I own a snare drum. You do? I got lucky. Someone someone had. I'm sorry, sidebar. How good was he? Like, I want to know what you thought. Yeah. I loved your actually one of the very first instructional, one of the first instructional drum things I used to my my teacher used to make me watch. Yogi did one before he passed away. Wait, can I ask, did he pass away while on tour? Um, yes, but not that tour. Uh, were you guys on the tour or uh we weren't on the tour that he passed away on it was two years later okay because right. I, I always wanted to know how how did luther recover like finding another drummer and that sort of thing. i wasn't yeah. around but we were on the tour when marvin passed away we were on tour with luther when marvin passed i remember us having a a prayer moment backstage completely quiet everybody on the tour holding hands and luther really? yeah it was a really it was really moving it was really something luther was really torn by it Right. All of us were. But I didn't know Marvin personally, but obviously was touched by his music. But Luther must have been very close to him because he he assembled everybody, every truck driver, everybody backstage. Right. Oh, really? It was really special, really special. The reason why I'm asking you about tour life is because I know eventually you're going to morph into just production, which, of course, means that you're going to have to leave the band. In your mind, is it like okay, there has to be something else other than this. Like, what? Where, where's the point where suddenly the, the wheels are turning and you're like, okay, we, we have to be a team. We have to write hits. Like, how does that happen? It was, for me, it was, um, we enjoyed being on the road. I enjoyed it uh, on the very first tour that we did. And 
the second album, as we talked about material, things didn't work. So we didn't have as much work, but we still did some some gigs here and there. Uh, we worked. And then mm-hmm. the third album took a while. So between our second album and the third album, we started to develop as songwriters and producers a little bit better. And because the second album was, wasn't a success, we had a little more time on our hands. So when we went back to do the tour with two occasions, I was over it. Like seriously was over it. Like before the tour started and cause I couldn't play anymore, man. i lost, I didn't, I don't know what happened, but I, maybe I started thinking about it or I don't know, but something got into me and I just couldn't play anymore. And uh, my hands were hurting. Like I felt like I had arthritis in my hands and I, I just, I lost it. I, I mean, at 16, I thought I was really good. You mm-hmm. know, at 21, I thought I was really good. And by my mid twenties, man, it just started to go away. And I literally never got it back. So like, I, I, I still have this. And that didn't upset you? Yes, it really upset me, except one thing. I took that drum machine and I mastered <laughs> that thing. I, yes. I was like, I was like, I don't care who you are, Jimmy Jam, Teddy Riley. I'm challenging anybody. <laughs> I could do this better than anybody, right? And so I switched. What was your drum of choice? I had every drum machine they made, man. I had Wait the lead drum, the DMX, the 808, everything. Gotcha. For me, I, I have to say, you do, you do have a trademark. It's, I don't know how you did it or why you did it, but I noticed it. Every fourth, maybe every eighth clap, you will put extra emphasis on the refurb. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Like some claps would be normal. I got that some- from Jimmy Jam. I, sc- I straight <laughs> stole that from Jimmy Jam because he did it on control. Control. Right. Uh-huh. Um, and I loved it so much. Um, so it was really Jimmy's signature. I borrowed it. We're friends. But it wouldn't, not be about it. Every, it wouldn't be every clap. It would be, it be every one strate- of them, though. It was strategically placed. And right. for me, when I think of the sound of classic, like when I think of Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, it's like the sound of the classic 808. Right. Like the, the sound that uh, old boy uh, who produced Loose Ends. Uh, Nick star. Martinelli. Oh, Nick Marnelli. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's five right. star. Like anything that sounds like Jam and Lewis, like that's their trademark. But for you, it was always right. To this day, like no one has mastered that level of of gated reverb better. Oh man, than you did. But was that okay? You say you took it from. I mean, Jimmy but still, Jim. you know, you, you we learn from each other, and then I, you know, you embellish it and do things with it, but. Uh, but I would spend hours, hours and hours and hours and hours playing with those drum machines and playing with rhythms and taking Kenny's keyboards and muting them and putting them through filters and playing. I just played with the sound, you know, um, mm. a lot. And that became my new passion. So that and the, a lot of that was because, by the way, I never actually played live on uh, on a recording session. Really? Right? Really? I did when I was young, like when I was young, I did some records, but like after we had the deal and when we came uh, and started making records, like I never actually played a live kit on a drum, on a, on a record, like never, never on a hit record. All right. Uh, hey, you know, what's called for, right? I was. And then I heard you. 
And then I was like, oh, get out of here, man. <laughs> I remember that Erica Badu record. I was like, yo, who right. my son turned me on? He's like, I was like, who is that? Mm, mm, and then mm. I read about you in Rolling Stone magazine and, and with your dad and all. Thanks, yeah, I'm man. done drumming. Uh, anyway, so can you talk to us about the, the conversation that leads to you and Kenny, like really making this official? Who was the first outside non-deal artist that, the LA and babyface that we know of. Uh, let's see. The very first one was when we officially did it together. That would have been the Whispers. Rocksteady. Mm. Yeah, Rocksteady. That's when we did it together. And uh, they hired yeah. Kenny. They called Kenny. They didn't call both of us. And Kenny uh, said, um, "I have to have LA with me." So he pulled me along. Okay. Right. Wow. Um, and. And it was really special. It was really good looking out. And and we had a comfort level working. Uh, but Kenny was obviously really famous in at Solar as a songwriter, more so than like the two of us, you know, and because of, um, yeah, that's kind of what happened. And we went in, we made Rocksteady, and then it became official, you know. And Did you know that was a pop hit or immediately did it become wow, a pilot really? no i knew it immediately i swear to you i did like when what I, when we were writing it i knew when we were, we were in an apartment on on um we lived on highland avenue in hollywood and when we were writing it i had a really good feeling about it but then when we got in the studio and we laid it down and we put the whispers on the background vocal before they sang lead I remember, I'll never, ever forget that moment. I was like, oh, my God, this is a smash. Mm. I knew it. <laughs> and people in the studio knew it. Like in other rooms, people would come around while we were working on it and hang out in the doorway and watch. It was just something special going on in that room. And we knew it. Right. Uh, and then when, you know, Scotty and Walter from The Whispers put their vocal on it, they just that was icing on the cake. But I mm -hmm. swear to you, I already felt it was a hit. And that goes back to your other question. Like, are, are hits manufactured or manufactured? Is it organic? I think that it's a little bit of both. Anytime I see the whispers sing, both Scotty twins sing in t tandem. Right. Who's doing the singing? Because that sounds like one verse. Oh, one yeah. voice. It's Scotty. Scotty's the one. Mm -hmm. Okay. Walter, Walter is a lighter version. Same, same, a very similar tone, very similar, but but uh, Scotty has more power. Oh, that's your answer. Right. So when is it when it's guagui time? That's that's Scotty that we that's know. Scotty, like, that's Scotty, man. That's and just gets better with hey, time Scotty. and all those songs. That's Scotty. Like, oh, that's right. Yeah, that's Scotty in the mood. Yeah. Scotty in the mood. That's Scotty. Okay. Wow! Oh, wow. Still, man. Sorry for telling the truth, y'all. No, nah, we appreciate nah, it. Nah, man, you gotta apologize. But I just always wanted to know why, when they sing, I've never seen just one person sing that song. It's always both of them together. I know, right? It's that's the gimmick, the gimmick, right? Yeah, that's the showbiz. The showman, yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah, okay. what that is. Did Did Griffey was that? Did he react to when you got that big hit? Did he say something to you about? It? I was curious because you was hitting some duds. So that's, according um, to him. Yeah, I don't remember. I, I really don't remember it, though, because we had another hit at the same time that he wasn't very happy about. What, Girlfriend? It was called Girlfriend, and it was on oh. Pebbles, and it was on a competing label, MCA. 
And I felt more uh, I felt more shade from Dick about doing that than I did. Uh, congratulations for making rock steady. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. Okay. All right. As a matter of fact, I wow. remember him coming to visit me once, and and I was like, "Hey, man, just made this record on Paul Abdul. Want to hear it?" He's like, "No, I actually I don't." <laughs> oh, I love you, man. Yeah. I ain't lie. And I don't say that like I'm trying to be protective of reputationally or anything. Like I really love the man because he was the first record executive I ever met. So the whole idea mm. of being a record executive, mm-hmm. I was heavily influenced by him. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. And and watching him make decisions and kind of how and why and you know some of the things he would say to me. You know, so it was really it was really uh, a good and. He was impressionable, but we had a really good relationship. Do you um, remember? I was thinking about this today about Dick. Do you remember something that you took with you from being with him that you learned? and something that you said, I ain't taking that with me when I do what I do. Wait a minute. As far Are as things I didn't want I, to take? I've yet to hear you hang somebody out the window. Yeah, I I, <laughs> I, I don't. I didn't. It's, it, there's a lot I didn't take. Okay. You know, uh, <laughs> and it's some things that you did. Good answer. Good answer. There's, yeah, there's, there's some things that I definitely uh, took with me. He called me once and he said, let me ask you something. You seem to know everything. Why are you still living in Cincinnati? I said, it's our hometown. You were still living in Cincinnati? I was living in Cincinnati when we made our first two albums. Right. Okay. Wow. And okay. he said, you can make more money by accident in Los Angeles than you can make on purpose in Cincinnati. <laughs> two weeks later, I lived in L.A. Yeah. Yeah, oh my God! Now I gotta know why you why you left and went to Atlanta. Oh, okay, I know yeah. we're not going that far yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so. Just in that in that initial period, how are? Because the thing is, it's like the deal guys never truly left us because I see different combinations of their names as songwriters, songwriter as producers, yes. or musicians. So, how what is what is the adjustment of sort of dissolving the deal and you and L- you and babyface starting your own unit and like is it is it church and state do you guys have your own management your own like are you now prioritizing working in the studio with these artists and then the group later like how's how's this working out when i think back on it and maybe i've never thought about it this way but when I think back on it, I can see how the other members of the group could really be unhappy with the choices that we made, right? Although they ultimately benefited everybody, in that moment, I could see how the other members of the group weren't very happy. Um, because one one of the things was they liked Cincinnati, my other guys, right? And they're still my friends to this day, right? But they liked Cincinnati and Kenny and I didn't. We had no desire to be in Cincinnati and Kenny didn't even like Atlanta that much, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he liked it, but like he didn't he, he didn't live there very long. Uh, he preferred living in Los Angeles and, you know, and he was a very ambitious and very talented man uh, and is, is and, you know, uh, but the other guys kind of were a little bit more homebodies so they weren't as ambitious. Was there an opportunity for them to join the fray? Like, who's coming with me? Who's coming with me? Or was it sort of like, 
Nah, we're I think, just I think after I'm trying to remember exactly how it took place, but I feel like after the last tour, yeah, the last tour we did, everybody kind of went their separate ways without a conversation. Kenny and I, after the tour was over, we decided to move to Atlanta with my Pebbles was my girlfriend at the time. Right. And we all decided and Daryl Simmons, who is. Kenny's best friend and a really, really talented songwriter and producer. Man, and I musician. love his songs, man. Yeah. Sure. Um, he decided to move to Atlanta with us and KO went to Atlanta with us. But Carlos and D, who were our other lead singers, they went back to Cincinnati. Wait a minute. I'm so, okay. It's so weird that you're telling this story because when I was watching uh, New Edition headline, the Essence Festival, I was sitting there just marveling at the fact that the Michael of the group, right. the leader of the group, really didn't get his moment in the sun the way that it should have been. Right. You know, because even in the, the way that they craft their show is literally like just the best mixtape ever right. of their 40 years. And, you know, not not even throwing shade, but yes, uh, sensitivity was probably the slowest part of the night, even though it was a straight up hit. Oh. Right, but no, 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 right. no, 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 no. But it, it I was. Just, I mean, by that point, it was like 19 hits. They they already did 19 hits. It was like, damn, I gotta go to the bathroom. Sensitivity. All right, all right. Let me take. Like, right, right. Sensitivity <laughs> is the time where it's like, all right, let me sit down because I know poison's about to come up. I gotta rest my. Right, 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 right. But <laughs> I, I was like, I was trying to wonder in history was there ever a case where the lead singers sort of faded in the background while everyone else in the unit got to do that so i always wanted to know what did d what did they do once like in 1989 1990 like did they try their hand at songwriting did they try producing they 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 made a couple of records as the deal because um mm. after, although we all went our separate ways they they did keep the unit together and they toured some uh they did some dates in japan mm -hmm. and um they did a few dates here and there. They would work on weekends, as uh, at, that, at least that's what I understand. Um, and they went out and found a couple of guys that could do the job, you know, and they worked. They've been working. But they also, they they took nine to five jobs. Yeah. But then D got very lucky because D actually, D, D Bristol, he actually is the guy that wrote the chorus I only think of you on two occasions. That's day and night. He wrote that. Mm -hmm. So uh, years later, Mariah Carey used it on We Belong Together. So uh, he saw. The publishing check was nice. Money still comes check. in. Money still comes <laughs> in. Yeah. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. 
Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just in general, between 1987 and 1991, I mean, goddamn, you had at least like 60 plus hits, top 40 hits. What is like is what is, what is the not even the division of labor, but just in terms of that much volume? Yeah, what does your life look like right now? Yeah, like how to me are you bespoking these songs? Is it like Jermaine comes to town and you're like talking to him? Okay, here's a song called Don't Take It Personal. You're meeting TLC for the first time. It's like, okay, well, uh, let me see a baby, baby. Like, are these songs sort of like in the stash somewhere in the back? And you're like, would you like this? Would you like this? Or are you custom making these songs? Some of those songs were custom made. Some of those songs, you got to remember, first of all, Kenny Edmonds is one of the most prolific songwriters ever. So Mm -hmm. he has a war chest of material that's unreal. Like I, you know, sometimes I want to call and say, man, let me just go through the tapes. Like really, because uh, he's so prolific. That's, That's the first thing. So he always had something but then when we like if if it were uh bobby brown sometimes we would start things from scratch whitney houston we would start songs from scratch uh where we're thinking about the artist uh but then every now and then he would pull a song out that he'd had for a long time and i'm ready he gave to tevin campbell which is one of my favorite songs and it had been around for like 10 years or better i think he might have oh, wow he okay. might have had that song when i met him seriously Okay. Like I remember wow. that long ago, um, it, like in the first the first chapter of our relationship as 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 musicians and friends, I remember hearing I'm ready on a demo. So so there was a backlog of material. But then we we would work on 
things End of the Road was, I don't think End of the Road was written for Boys to Men, but once it was done, it was pretty obvious. So I knew who to call. Mm-hmm. Um, or I remember. Uh, how do you Kenny, know how to match a song to an artist? I don't know. I don't really know, but I think that that's what A&R really is, is artist and repertoire, right? Finding the artist and the repertoire to match it when yeah, it's particularly when it's people that maybe either they don't write songs or or they collaborate or they accept outside songs. And we tended to work with people who accepted outside material. We didn't like it that much working with people who could also write because it always changed how we would write, right? Um, and we had a thing that we liked to do. And we thought of ourselves as, we thought we were the deal and whoever was singing was the lead singer, right? But it was like every song was, I'm your baby tonight is the deal featuring Whitney Houston. That's how we always look at it, right? <laughs> or my, my, my is the deal featuring Johnny Gill. Or, you know, uh, because me and Kenny and KO and Daryl basically played on everything, yeah. you know, um, or programmed or however you want to look at it. We created all of the music for it. Um, uh, and we didn't really like tampering. So I remember once we were doing Jermaine Jackson and we we finished some records and then he brought in his keyboard player, to like mm. reproduce all the songs and we were like mm. what's this and the dude was and and i forget his name now he's really talented but it was just changing everything and it was i was like no this doesn't work no yeah no and i said we'll keep that solo we did that's the best we could do the rest of it <laughs> you know at work at saturday night live whenever comedians stand-up comedians host the show they try to bring their team in to try to right. write for them right and it never works. It's always work. best when you just trust the system and let the producers yes. or let the writers do it. So of, of of for that initial gust of of LA face LA faced them. Mm-hmm. What song almost didn't make it? Oh man, let me see. Almost a, at least a, a a staple that we know. I don't know. I think we were way too greedy and ambitious, man. We were trying to get everything out. Like when I don't, I don't recall that one. I don't have a good answer for that one. Um, okay. You guys produced Pebbles, and you also produced Karen White's first record. Right. Wow. First, first album. Yep. Wow. Amazing results. Yes. Second album. Why didn't Karen White? Now I knew at the time she's dating Terry Lewis. Why? Didn't you guys work on the second Karen White record? Or was that a Benny Medina thing? Uh, oh, um, <laughs> ooh, no, that definitely wasn't a Benny thing. Uh, oh, wait a minute. He was there. Yeah. It was. <laughs> <laughs> it was a Benny thing. Oh, hold it. So, ah, okay. Benny's like my best thing. friend. Uh, wait, wait, let me ask Fonte. <laughs> Right. For the life of you, can you sing the first? And I know Jam is going to kill me for this, but even I got him to admit this. Can you name? Can you sing the first verse of a romantic? No, dude. Wait. Did you know that romantic actually went to number one? Yeah, I believe that was on the radio hard though. Wow. Yeah, it was romantic. Wow. Was the number one wow. pop hit? Yeah, it's on the radio hard. Uh, look at Monte's face right now. Exactly. Yeah, I exactly. Yeah, I and I remember the hook. Let's get romantic. Oh, oh, romantic. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Y'all all singing the wrong romantic. My whole yeah. point. <laughs> it's not. It's time to get romantic. Okay. 
my whole point is that yes, even though they managed to get a number one pop single off that Karen White record, there was no impact. It, I couldn't name no cut for the life of me. And my thing is like, if it's not broken now, again, my my assumption is she married Terry Lewis, so it's sort of like, is this bring your husband to work day or whatever? But I I wouldn't have would mean, messed with the make records no, with nobody. Else. No, I think it was. I think you nailed it. Okay, so. For entertainment, I have to tell you this story, just for entertainment's sake. And I'm not, and I'll go quickly. No, we love this. So we're in New Orleans, where you are now. There used to be a show called the Budweiser Superfest. Ah, uh, yes. yes, we know. Heyman. That was Al, the, Al Heyman. We're on the tour. Al, Al Heyman. Heyman. Thank yes. you. And we're on the package doing uh, our final tour with two occasions. And and Pebbles is with us. She's not on the tour, but she's hanging out with me. Her tour ended. She's just hanging with me. Benny Medina invites us to a Warner Music conference that they're having in New Orleans, right? And all the labels like Warner, Electra, Atlantic, all the labels and all the big executives who I didn't know at the time, Steve Ross and Bob Krasnow and David Geffen and Quincy Jones and Doug Morris and Jimmy Ivey, all these, I, I didn't know any of them. Anyway, so Benny invites us because we happen to have one of their hottest records, uh, Superwoman with Karen White at the time. Karen White. Yeah. So he invites Babyface and I to the conference. So we're like, great. So we we go to the conference and I walk. We walk in and it's Babyface, Pebbles, and myself. And I don't know record company politics or anything like that. Benny comes running over to us and says, "I invited you, and I invited you." And he points to Pebbles and he says, but I did not invite her. And I'm like, mm. well, if she can't come, then I don't want to be here. Cause, and I don't get it. I don't. And, and we turn around and leave and we, and, and we oh. fall out and Benny and I don't speak for a decade. Right. Wow. And 10 years later, he told me it was because LA, I was seating you guys with Karen white and it's her moment. And her competition is Pebbles, and you bring Pebbles in, and you're gonna put her at the same table, like. And I was uh -huh. like, "Oh, I thought you were just being an asshole. I didn't realize I was, I was, I was wrong here. I didn't know. I didn't know. So, so uh -huh. I didn't speak to Benny for a decade, and we never worked with Karen again. Yeah. Wow. Finally, okay. an answer I'm satisfied with, because it's like, why ruin the formula? Why right. ruin the formula? Exactly. And we loved working with Karen, like loved it. And we had fun doing it, right? She was fun. She could sing. She had a great mm -hmm. tone, great voice. And she was a, like a real musician type of singer. You know, she had some, you know, she knew music. She knew about, you know, Sly and the Family Stone, things that we liked. She knew about, by the way, the end of Superwoman, ever so slightly like Purple Rain. <laughs> oh, with the strings and and the ooh, and the ooh, 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 it almost looked like you had a, a universal MCA situation about to happen. Yes. And then the next thing I know, everything's happening on Arista. Now, when you're 
doing a roster when you're when you're producing for these artists is it a contractual thing are you allowed to do other people or is it like once right. you start the arista phase you must stick to arista and arista only it wasn't exactly that it started out that we were solar in-house producers for sure and and after after the whispers took off and the deal and babyface had hits uh Lil Silas we became friends with Lul and Cheryl Dickerson at, at both of them and Gerald Busby. We became friends with the MCA crew and we went over and started helping them. We did the Mac band for them. One of my favorite songs we ever did was Roses Are Red. Roses, by the Roses Are Red. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it feels underrated. It feels like no, no one knows it, you know, but uh, I, I really dig that. And we ended up doing Pebbles for them. And he did the boys as well. And we did the boys. Got my heart. Yeah. And yeah, Not so boys to men. At, later, when when right. it became Motown, we did boys to men. No label CEO is making you guys sign an exclusive contract to stay, which is like it never occurred to Dick Griffey to say you guys are my house producers only. I think I I did sign a contract with with Solar for to be an exclusive in house producer, but I never got I never got the money, so I never honored it. Okay, cool. <laughs> Yeah, you know, uh, he didn't hold me to it. I didn't hold him to it. We were like, and it wasn't for that much money. Yeah, so so we worked with with Lul for a while, and then Benny Medina called. No, someone called us and asked us to meet Benny Medina. So we went over and we met him, and we said, "Who's on your roster?" And he named Al Jarreau. We were like, "Nah." Says Chaka Khan, who was my favorite singer, but I was like, I don't know how we could do any better than I feel for you. No. Mm-hmm. And then he said Karen White. And I remembered hearing her on the radio singing These Are the Facts of facts Love. Of love. Yeah. And I was like, oh, we could do something with that. Right. And so that's how it worked out. So, yes, um, we were supposed to do LaFace Records with MCA. It wasn't Universal yet. It was MCA. And Irving Azoff ran the company. Yeah, and uh, Gerald Busby had already departed to start Motown to take over Motown, Motown. and uh, Lul was still there also. What was Lil Silas Jr. like, just as an executive? A lot of energy. He knew his records, like you know, he was a he was a DJ too, you know, uh, and he okay. remixed every song that came out, like every single song that came out at that time. He would remix. He would remix. Guy records, anything. Every See, song. I thought he was just slapping his name on on those productions. I didn't realize that he <laughs> no, was he had a crew. He had a team of people. He had an engineer. He had a programmer, and and it was him. And he would take all the records that he liked. He would take them in and do the remix of them. You know, and and sometimes they'd be harder when he's done with them. Like not every time, but sometimes they would be hard. But he was a lot of fun. Really competitive. And at that time, in 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 black music in in L.A. They were like these three superstar uh, A&R guys. One of them was Lil Silas Jr. The other one was John McClain, who was at A&M. We, that's our dream interview. We can't find him for Jack. Oh, he's the, the greatest. And then there was Benny Medina, who was at Warner. Right. But these are like the three stars in town. And, you know, and I, they, I became friends with all of them. And it was really great. But Lil was great, man. He was fun. That's what's up. He was great. Great dude. At the time when I first, I think when I heard uh, uh, Donnie Simpson make the announcement that Whitney Houston is going to work with Ellie and Face, I got slightly nervous. Oh, wow. Rightly. 
because the thing is that, you know, the Whitney train was, you know, and I'm not saying anything that that isn't facts. You know, she definitely it was it was overkill. We, we all know about the booing of the Soul Train Awards and all those things. Right. And I often wondered if placing her in your hands was almost a setup for a disaster. Because the thing is, like, the first album sells 12 million and the second album sells 15 million. So there's like in meeting with Clive Davis, is he saying to yourself, like, don't fuck up like y'all better give me another 10 to 15 million. And how, how was the general, what was the general consensus when I'm your baby tonight only did again, I don't consider it. It did five, a solid 5 million. Right. That's right. But it, but it wasn't what the first two albums were. And actually I'm glad it wasn't what the first two records were, but just, can you walk us through that whole, what was the, what was the pressure? I think that didn't feel pressure, first of all, did not feel any pressure, didn't approach it that way. He was very clear that Whitney had a black problem. So his goal wasn't I want to sell 15 million. His goal was ingratiate my artist with the black community, please. Like stand beside her, work with her because they don't think she's cool. Right. And so success was simply um black people saying okay Whitney she need a jam right that's all it was that's all it was so and and so we didn't feel any pressure and we knew we couldn't be I'm being honest we knew we couldn't make those kinds of records like those those big records that she had like Uh, well yeah okay I get that you know like we didn't write like that we didn't produce Mm -hmm. like that I think through a ballot you could have reached those heights probably right but my thing is that in that in that time in 1990, when New Jack Swing is going gaga, and you guys are actually the proprietors, I mean the entire "Don't Be Cool" record is a tutorial in New Jack Swingdom, right? <laughs> but next to the the Eyes of a Stranger record, I was so confused as to why a shuffle song was her first statement and reclaiming. <laughs> Her throne. Yeah, but it worked. Yeah, it was perfect. Yeah. Okay. Yes, it, it, I think it worked because the powers that be made it work. Everyone knew who Ellie and Babyface were. Everyone knew who Whitney Houston was. So it was like, and it was a great song. Let's be yeah, clear. Like, I, I mean, I'm the baby night was a great bit. fucking song. Yeah, yeah. Like the shit was a jam. Yeah. Okay, but it was just an unusual, risky song. Okay. All right. Risky. It was risky. Like, cause could could DJs have played that in the nightclub? Like that that level of of shuffle in twelve eight meter was like harking back to like Luther Vandross's bad boy having a party, sure which is, That's is right. more barbecue. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. ah, watch out now! Like okay. barbecue, yeah. <laughs> not every little step, not right on our right. own. Yes, not man. girlfriend, like, not a straight cruel, ahead. Yeah. No, no, it's a risk. In in hindsight, yeah. I would say it's the best move because. I love when risks work, but damn, yo, like why? We also, you know what else it was? We had played ourselves out, like not to the public, maybe, but we played ourselves out with that sound. And we we had moved to Atlanta and we were experimenting. 
because we were trying to refine ourselves and we couldn't do the Dow my heart again. We couldn't do, mm-hmm. you know, we, we just couldn't do it anymore. Like we had done it so much on so many songs, like every song had, had that, that kind of groove on it. And it was, it's just got tired, you know, for us. Um, and so I'm your baby tonight was, it was, it was a little bit of us, reinventing us as much as it was trying to give Whitney Houston something that we thought was unique. I can totally see that. I I would have thought Susan would have probably, well, if Susan didn't have a a direct proper noun attached to it, I would have thought (laughs) like, my name is not Susan would have been. Right. Yeah. But I think that was what she needed. It reminded me a lot of Jimmy Jam's story of like doing with Janet and like, you know, if was the one on the Janet album Right. That was the one that was like Janet, the gimme, just, right. you know, go. But that's the way Love Goes was the one that's like, oh, shit. Right. You know right. what I mean? It's, it's you know, it's Damn. a different thing, you know? Ooh. And that's what, they, they that's what I'm Your Baby Tonight first. was for me. Yeah, they yeah. almost yeah. went with just, it first. Let's turn it around. And, and to be honest, not to be that radio girl uses old, you know, logic, but they both sound like more female records. Like, I'm Your Baby Tonight is way more female, just like yeah. Janet. Yeah, it's just, it's just mm. women heard it. It was like, I was really proud of it. I, I was so proud of that record when we finished it because it was, we had never done a shuffle. We hadn't, we hadn't did, we no, no songs like that. And I was proud of, I was just proud of it. And it, and it didn't matter to me the success of it. And, and I know that sounds like uh, I'm being a little bit frivolous about it, but. It was more like, can we tackle Whitney Houston and do something with Whitney that hasn't been done already? Because we can't do what she's done better than she's mm-hmm. done it. So can we do something that's just our take on it? And we did that successfully. Um, and I was very happy with it. And I ain't gonna lie, I really do like the drum feels on it. <laughs> <laughs> no, in hindsight, I think it's a great normalizing it, it, it normalized her, mm-hmm. made her relatable and down yeah. to earth. That was what it was And, mm-hmm. you know, because the, the, the joints I liked on the first record were like the Kashif records and that that sort oh, of man. thing. Uh, and it didn't have its, it didn't have any sugar pop on it, which right. I'm but glad. We had a little problem that we never discussed. I never talked to Kenny about it, but we did Whitney and we did Michael. And our Michael stuff never came out because we couldn't nail it. We spent a lot of time with Michael and we just couldn't nail it. And and we spent a lot of time with Whitney and we were able to get a little bit off. But for some reason, those are big stars because that wasn't our thing. Our thing was the Mm -hmm. artist of our generation. Like that's what we were great at. If we were great at anything, it was like, let's work with Bobby Brown. You know, let's work with Pebbles. Let's do Babyface. Let's do, you know, Karen White. Let's do our our crew after seven, even like uh, Mm -hmm. our crew. But when we went outside of our circle and tried to do those superstars, the truth is we did not nail it. We did not nail it. Now we got, something off with Whitney and we developed an incredible relationship with her uh, that would last for many years, but none of those, it didn't resemble the success that we'd had, not sound wise, not signature wise, not impact wise. And it was the first, and you're right, because it was the first time that you could criticize whether it was actually the right thing. And after that, we did Michael. I mean, we couldn't even get out of the studio with a song, man. Damn. Like, wow. and, and we knew how to write and we knew how to produce, but there was something about being in that room with Michael 
that we just were overshooting it and trying too hard and just could not get any, nothing felt natural. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So how hard was it to walk away from the Dangerous Record knowing that, damn, we couldn't do it. it what well, we just knew it. Like when we went home, when we left the studio after being in there for a month, and when we went home. Oh wow, it was a month. Yeah, and oh, shit, one okay. song. No, we 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 attempted to write several songs, and he and he recorded, he recorded background vocals on one, never finished it, and he completed one, never mixed it. The slave to the rhythm song, right? Slave to the rhythm, yeah. So did anything happen to those other songs that were meant for him? Nope. They're just sitting. They're sitting somewhere. I think they might be in, in my vault. Um, yeah, I think oh. they might be in my vault because I, I, that's where I found Slave to the Rhythm at. 
you know, I because we didn't do Slave to the Rhythm with Sony. We did that with Michael. We didn't do it as a, a higher by the record label. That was a mm-hmm. relationship just between us and Michael. Uh, so we all kept we kept our tapes. So was that a teachable lesson in or make you leery of those A-list stars? Like, because I'm certain by that point, everybody was calling you. Like, yeah. who did you who would you say no to? A-list. Well, Kenny became much better at it. Right. Because he did Madonna successfully and he did Eric Clapton successfully. And so he became he nailed it. Uh, I went the other way, which was I only wanted to work with the artists that were signed that we were signing. I didn't want to work with anybody. else. You signed. You were like, I'm going to manufacture the next 10 million. Yes, I'm doing that. So I just went into that mode. And um, so what was the realization point where it's like, hey. Office life. Like who does that? Who wants (laughs) who who wants to be a rock star and then says, or did you realize early that all of the power and the money and the success and the magic is behind? It wasn't that. You know what it was for me? It was it was really the love of music, man. It was because I loved music, not only the music that Kenny and I made, but when I met people like Dallas Austin. Or when I met, like, not just people I work with, but when I would meet other producers, I would love mm-hmm. their music. Like, I love Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis are, like, my favorite producers. Leon Silvers is my favorite, you know, amongst my favorite producers. And uh, when when Nelly Hooper did Soul to Soul, like, I met him, and mm-hmm. I was, like, taking, and uh, uh, Martinelli, I met him at Clarence Avon's house. And I just, I love oh, the man. people that made music. So I didn't want a career that was based on the music that I made. I didn't think I was good enough for that. I wanted to be a career that I could work with people that I thought were uh, immensely talented. So my career decisions had only to do with music. It had nothing to do with power. It had nothing to do with money. It was a pure love of, damn, I love how Dallas does this. I love how Jermaine Dupri does that. Oh my God, these kids organize noise. They do this and they do, it was purely my love of music and my love of artistry. Right. And I like the idea of like when we met Pebbles, no one knew who she was and we made her record and it worked. And so and when we did Karen White, no one knew who that was. I mean, she had one song on the radio, but she wasn't famous, so to speak, or 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 our own band, The Deal or Babyface. Or, so I was so into homegrown and I felt comfortable in homegrown and I felt uncomfortable having to measure up to stars. But you realize that once you get behind that desk, your Jedi mind trick knowledge has to go into overdrive. Because I'm certain by that point, like when you're having your own label, you're trying to you got to talk people out of a lot of bad decisions. <laughs> right. Mm. Like you you got to take meetings and you got to remember names. And, bad cop, bad cop. And go what to things do? like Jack the Rapper and, and whatever. Right. And shake hands and kiss babies. Like who would trade? <laughs> I think it's for the state that you are in your life. Like I had, like I was my group, little brother. We were signed to uh, Atlantic, you know, yeah. years ago, and uh, and you know Julie Greenwald. We would have conversations, and you know she would say, like you know, we had a conversation recently, and she was just talking about how at this point in her career she enjoys kind of being in the stage, kind of you know where you are, and just all the OGs in the game where they're able to kind of sit back and see the whole big picture and kind of direct 
from that standpoint. So being in the room and where it happens is more. Yeah, like that's yeah, that's the thing, and I get it. It makes total sense, you know. Versus when you're, you know, in your LA and Babyface days, where you're actually kind of in the field, so to speak, like where you're in the studio, you're programming the drums, whatever. Now you get to kind of be the big picture guy and assemble yeah. all the pieces. There's you know one thing I, mean? I learned about it that I that I do love, um, and uh, being being an executive. And it had to do with choices about artists and records. And like the great, the ones I love that I consider the great Barry Gordy, obviously being number one on, on that side of the ledger, right? As an executive, um, Clive mm. Davis, I obviously love and respect Jimmy Iovine, Ahmed Erdogan, and there are others, you know. Uh, but what I loved is if they were passionate about something, they could drive it. And to your point, right, like you, I think you kind of called it manufacturing, but it was more like if you have this intuition or this instinct or this gut that something is the thing and to just drive it through. Yeah. Right. We believe like, in like it. It's a belief. I, that belief yeah. thing. I like I like that. I don't see much of that these days. I really don't like with um, I, I see people really having to have data to back up their decisions. As oh, opposed yeah. To having a gut. oh, yeah. Oh, right? yeah. I like Talk about the fact that, that, you know, we did it with our gut and. We were wrong a lot of times, but we were right enough times that we are considered successful, right? Um, mm -hmm. And I like that. And I like that particularly for Black artists because Black artists don't often get an opportunity to get a crossover shot, a shot to the mainstream. That is all because, like, Whitney Houston is because Clive Davis said, this is for the masses. Rihanna is because I said, this is for the masses. When you sign Rihanna, I mean, she's now God status. Like there's, yeah, she's literally past, she's past the Vanguard level. Like in my mind, Rihanna would have just been like maybe Janet Jackson level where she just has 20 hits under her belt, but she's yeah. now past that point. I can't say I knew all that. Maybe Jay Brown knew it. Maybe Jay-Z knew it, right? Because obviously <laughs> all of us were involved together. Uh, I can't say that. When I first saw her and I heard her first Ponder replay, Jay Brown brought it to me one night in, in the office. It was really late at night. And I was like, I guess. Right. That was my reaction. I yeah. said, I Wait, guess. All right. Can, can I ask one more question? <laughs> all right, right. This is also the period where we were about to sign to the label. Yeah. I remember, <laughs> once, I remember once going to a Jay show. Rihanna was there, and you signed Rita Ora. What's her name? Rita Ora. Yeah, no, 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 no not Rita Ora. Tierra Marie. Tierra Marie. Yeah. All right. Now the energy that I felt in the room oh, when I was backstage was Tierra Marie was going to be out of the smash. One hundred percent. Yeah. And Rihanna got the cute little hit, and she'll yeah. probably get on like now. That's be in the malls. Her, her song will play in the malls. <laughs> Yeah, right. I thought she's gonna be on that. Now that's what I call music volume thirty-seven. Yeah, yeah. And the opposite happened. Yeah. So how how does it again? Is that Jedi mind tricking where you have to know who your artist is? Like, how long do you get to absorb an artist to know what they need in order to make it happen? I think it's just like. Okay, so especially when they self sabotage a lot, right? So I think this. First of all, I think this helps answer one of your other questions. Yes, we really believed in Tierra Marie, all of us, 
Because she got the Rockefeller chain, all of it. Yes, she believed in her. Yeah. It didn't work. I love her as a person. I saw her not long ago, but it didn't it didn't connect at all. The songs didn't connect. The artists didn't really connect. And um, so, no, you can't force it. You could you can you could prioritize it and you can try, but you can't you can lead the horse to water, but you cannot make them drink. Right. It doesn't it didn't work. Rihanna, on the other hand, um, I grew I grew into it personally. Like I remember when it hit me. I rem- I remember really well when it hit me um, sitting in the house one night and listening to the demos and, you know, Jay Brown, Tata and those guys, they they were making her records like and they were giving them to me to listen to. Um, and I remember sitting at home listening to Good Girl Gone Bad and all these songs. I came back and said, wait a minute, guys, we should call an album that. We should call an album Good Girl Gone Bad, right? And uh, it, it was like it was a statement. Anyway, my point is it all of a sudden hit me that she was it. And then she did this song called SOS. Mm. And I watched the video for SOS. Mm-hmm. And I took it home. I told my wife, Erica, I was like, this girl's about to be the biggest star in the country if not the world, watch this video. And we watched the video and she was like, okay, I get it. And then she made Umbrella. And when she made Umbrella, I was, I, then did I, do I know, do I have an instinct? Do I have an intuition in those moments? Yes. Cause yeah. I knew that was <laughs> out of here. I was like, yeah, she's gone. Right. Okay. You get a song like Umbrella. You get Jay-Z on that song. Can you walk us through the process of what it takes to make that song connect with an artist? Like, how do you, do you play it? Who do you play it for first? Who gets the Or did the dream who? just bring it? Yeah, the, when the dream's processed. Yeah, so. No, no, that, no, no. I mean, creatively, I'm talking uh, about once you have album in hand. Okay. How do you ah. make sure that how 12 million people around the world know what Umbrella is? At the time. It's certain it's a, it's it, there there are more avenues now like it's the game has gotten pretty complicated and it's and it's flooded flooded with stuff right um, uh from all these platforms and all this DIY and every the a very low barrier to entry so there's a lot more stuff than there are than, than there is special stuff yes uh in the game back in those days a record executive can make a record a priority and 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 put it on radio, all radio, and people will hear it. And video, video mattered, right? And MTV mattered, and BET mattered, and VH1 mattered, right? And so all of our, our all of our avenues and our platforms, uh, we had enough influence that we could get it a shot. It still had to take off. But our job was just to get it in front of the people. Um, and that's what we did. We got it in front of the people and it took off. So does that also mean that your relationship has to be intact with, I don't know who like ran MTV or Viacom at the time or your relationship yeah. with uh, whoever runs Clear Channel? Or yes. The- yeah. It absolutely means that. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Those contacts are are golden. They really are. I mean, we try to always keep them. And even with the changing of guards, right? We, we're, we're right there to, 
you know, hail the new king, hail the yeah. new queen. Uh, but the relationships <laughs> are golden. But it's also the artist relationships with these people and with these gatekeepers. You know, um, they they also have to have their own. They have to do the mm-hmm. work. We can't do the work for an artist. An artist has to do that. You know, so you it's, pull up. it's you knowing Tom, you know, uh, Pullman. It's you knowing John Sykes. And it's it's you know what I mean? It's it's you Stephen knowing Hill. Stephen Hill or Calderon at MTV or yeah. Jesse Collins or whoever it might. It's you knowing yeah. everybody also. Uh, and that has a lot of I think that has a lot of of, of weight. So even now, th- like. Does it get tiring to have to know names and what they represent? And oh, how do you keep up, LA? It's exciting. I'm the worst at that. Shit. Okay, it's more than it's ever. Exciting right? though. No, okay. I love that. I absolutely love the challenge of that. Like I okay. and 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 my memory is horrible. I mean, you can ask me anything about the '80s. I pr- remember it, but anything from like 2011 mm-hmm. forward, I barely remember. I don't know why, but uh, <laughs> but I really like the idea of it. I mean, once I embraced being an executive, I did have a goal, and my goal was to be the best. Yep, you know it. So check it. L.A. only wanted to do about an hour, but you know that we couldn't let him go. So once we got him rolling, he just wouldn't stop talking. So basically, that's it for part two. And I want you to check back for our third and final QLS episode with Ellie Reed. And while you're at it, definitely check out our QLS episodes with Babyface as well. You know, they go hand in hand. All right. See y'all next time. Thank you. What's Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.